0: okay welcome to true house stories i am lenny fontana coming out of new york city and the summer is wrapping up it's going fast it's been a rainy one we've all been trying to deal with covid and all that great stuff oh god great stuff not even great but we're trying to turn lemons into lemonade (laughs) let's look like that (laughs) so on that note we will say keep drinking lemonade smile Someone loves you. It's like Telly Savalas was saying, Kojak, God loves you. Anyway, we're going back in time, as I always love to do, revere to some of the best in our game. And when I say our game, it's because I was in, started in his game. He's pre- predecessor to even myself. He was around from when dinosaurs roamed. And I mean dinosaurs, music speaking, not dinosaurs from. Rrr! You know, but dinosaurs, a sense of having to create things on the fly, come up with solutions and make dreams possible with very archaic gear in a time that, you know, today, everything is one stroke away. You can Google it. In his day, it was like, we must build it or I have to figure this thing out. Don't give me a moment. Like Bob Clearmountain would tell Tom Moulton, I can do it. I can make it. Don't worry. And probably Tom would leave the room or any of those engineers would say, I don't know. We'll figure it out. But anyway, Bob can share that and give us his life. But we're going to turn su- shortly right now to Bob Clear. Bob Blank, Bob Blank, who's gone. I was going to say Bob Clearmountain. God forgive me. Bob Blank, who's, they're both all legends, even Bob Blank, Bob Mountain, but Bob Blank is a huge legend in disco, oh my god, disco R&B, this is the man, and I want to welcome to the stage, to the show, Mr. Bob Blank, <laughs> I hope I covered as best as I could, Bob, thank you so much, welcome Bob, all the way from Connecticut, he's here, he's with us, he's with us. Bob, how are you doing, buddy? You okay?
1: I'm doing great. Um, I'm I live in uh, Greenwich, Connecticut now. I have a tiny production studio, which has been pretty inactive. I know we're going to be talking about this stuff back here, which some people might know of records and tape and everything. But I have a pretty uh, a a Pro Tools system, which I'm I'm still using. but the way uh, the world has been for the last uh, 16 17 months i haven't really been in front of too many people and that's i know this sounds crazy but that's sort of the best part of the disco era is we were all working with musicians and arrangers and singers and we were all interacting and it was all happening live And like you said when we would <clears throat> we would go in the studio if you didn't like that guitar part, then we had to record it again. It wasn't like, we'll just edit it and change all the notes. So it was a different time. But I personally think that they were the really great
0: times. But I'm great. Life is good. And you're still so healthy, you're with us strong, and rolling along, right? That's all you yes. can say. Like yes. now Rogers says, a good day above ground is a good day. Another day. I, 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 it's true. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so." You know, as everybody knows, let's get right into it because you got a story that goes for gener- a full generation and probably longer than that. For some, it's a lot older than some of the people that watch the show. But we need to start with, you know, how does music find the young, the young Bob Blank, you know, the kid? From there, you could take us, you know, paint that story. The way uh-huh. you know. Well, uh, just.
1: This sounds crazy, but when I was a little kid, I had an uncle, and he would bring the kids things. And he lived in New Jersey, in Elizabeth, New Jersey. He'd bring us records. And while this guy who looks like this was there, he my uncle owned a lot of uh, black bars in the city of Elizabeth, New Jersey. The first records I heard were uh, James Brown bb king these kind of uh r&b early R- r&b things and of course i was exposed to everything else on the ed sullivan show all this you know the pop music of the time but i really was listening to all that when i um when i was a teenager if you want to put up uh, number 11 picture number 11 this is me on the left with michael altshuler uh, in Michael's father's basement. And I think I'm 16, 15, 16 at the time. And as you can see, we're, we're doing a recording session. And, uh, Michael's father was, uh, a promo person at Columbia records. And we were very encouraged to do all this, to use his basement to make records. And, uh, this is where I started doing this, uh, basically right to two track, time moves on uh, I move to the is this is
0: this too tedious by the way Letty? not at all you take it I totally get it I everyone who's here is soaking in like a sponge come on everybody get your pen and papers out write notes <laughs> okay so anyway there I am um,
1: Woodstock happens I'm 18 I moved to the southwest Um and I start, uh, I, at the time, I was uh, a guitarist. And I started playing in bands in the Southwest and uh, performing. Uh, Back up, we backed up people um, like Bo Diddley, people who came through town. And uh, I s- started understanding music. I, was pr- I produced uh, a band uh, out there called Fast Eddie. And uh, we tried to make records. There's a picture... Um, this is, you'll find this pretty funny if you look at number nine. So this is, this is that, this is me in the, in 1970, uh, ready to, ready to hit New York as a guitarist.
0: And, uh, that's Was that you're so. that your, like your Eric Clapton, the Derek and the Domino's look at the time. <laughs> Cream. Yeah. We yeah. yeah yeah hippies didn't really uh, have much going style wise so
1: this was me <laughs> so anyway I moved to New York and um, I'm living in the Kenmore Hotel which was a flop house on 23rd Street walking around town with my guitar <clears throat> and uh, I got a job. My first professional job was a place called Sanders Recording Studio. Sanders Recording Studio was, if you remember New York from those days, 48th Street was called Music Row. Cross, We were across the street from Manny's, upstairs uh, and downstairs, down the block with Sam Ash, all these music. So, and we had a little studio on the second floor uh, walk-up, and I was the engineer. And, uh, in fact, that's where where I met Richie Ash, who... Is now billionaire I guess but he had a band and we all recorded and did all this stuff so we were in uh, Sanders recording studio and I was working with people like Tiny Tim and uh, artists like that <clears throat> make a long story short there I am I'm going I, I can do this I can do this <clears throat> finally I get a job as a, as a session player I, I go in it's for a commercial so I walk in with my guitar, and this is relevant to the disco era. So I go I go in there, and I'm, I'm walking in. I, said, I got this. I got this. What can it be? It's 30 seconds or, or 60 seconds. It's only 12 bars. I sit down. I see music. Next to me is Eric Gale and another guitarist. Eric Gale is a pretty well-known guitarist at the time. And I'm sitting there going, oh, okay. I... All of a sudden, the conductor says, do it. Bam. Everybody's playing perfectly. It sounds amazing. I'm still trying to figure it out. I realized at the time, at that time I have another path to follow. I wind up getting a job at a place called Delta Recording Studio, which at the time was an eight-track studio in the Palace Theatre building. Palace Theatre uh, on 47th Street <clears throat> and, and, uh, and Broadway. And Palace is still there. So this and the story accelerates from here. Here's a if you look at uh, picture number twelve. So this is me in uh, in the early seventies. I'm sitting in a little console and I'm filling out an invoice, I guess. But uh, another picture from that time. So let's
0: see if I can show. Oh, can I can I stop you? Can you yeah. tell us which console that is that you're writing on? Is that, is that MCI? Who is that console? You know, this is um, a. a this is a company called Audio and Designs, and at the time
1: this console was made, it was they were all custom. You want to hear the specs of the console? It was a it had uh, eight outs, and uh, there were I think uh, twenty faders. Uh, different than the consoles that are made today, which are one and a half inch wide faders. I'm sorry to get so technical. Which if you put out your hands. You can, if you stretch out 10 hands, 10 fingers on your hand, you can reach a bunch of faders. This thing was a little too wide for that, and they soon abandoned this two and a half inch spacing. Console is pretty rudimentary, <clears throat> but it was custom built for this studio. And there's another picture of me at that console uh, if you look at number 10. Yes. yes. So this is me in a promo that was done. Well, obviously, I'm not standing with a bank of tape machines behind me but the picture on the left is me at this console and like i said it was pretty rudimentary you know if you wanted to move five things at once you place your hands over it we used to have a a trick where if we had three or four tracks to move we'd tape a pencil to them so we could move them all at once so it's pretty basic we had a scully eight track machine the uh the chief engineer at the time was dominic Costanzo, who's still around and one of the top guys in our industry as far as technology and uh, i remember the day they put in a 16 track all of a sudden we have 16 tracks to record on it's pretty primitive the studio was really pretty well known as a low-end studio for latin music and one of the first sessions i did I worked with an artist called Luis Ramirez, and the producer was a guy named Bobby Marin. So Bobby Marin uh, was a uh, producer for United Artists, and we started, started making records, and uh, <clears throat> it was, I just was working with all the Latin musicians in New York, which by the way, that is what New York is, Latin music, R&B, and especially at that time. So one day Bobby comes in and says, you know, what's really happening now disco. And he says, I got an idea. So he pulls, <clears throat> um, he says, do you remember the song to be with you by Joe Cubis X tech? And I said, well, it's a little before my time, but I'm a record collector. Sure. I remember 1961. It was a New York hit. It's a ballad. Do you remember this song, Lenny as a ballad? It was, Really
0: do same album as Bang Bang do, 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 do. Bang on Tico Records, right? You got it. You got it. You know, yeah. I, I'll tell you why, everybody. My mother used to play it. That's how I know because my mother's Puerto Rican. So I remember hearing that album, but I'm saying, is that got to be the same with the front cover? They're all standing together. I can't <laughs> believe it. I'm actually remembering this as you're saying it. I'm going, it's got to be on that album. That's the, exactly well. The lead singer, right. Tico. Yeah, yeah, So Jim, you know, uh, it,
1: one day you should have Bobby talk come on and talk about Latin music in New York. It's an amazing thing. But what happened with us was, <clears throat> he said, "Well, the lead singer from Joe Cuba Sextet, Jimmy Sabater, he's around, and this we did this this song in 1961. Everybody in New York, it's like a a, a thing." Why don't we do a disco version of that song? So uh, he called his uh, his arranger uh, Chico Mendoza, who is uh, if you know who that is. Right now he's still I think he's still uh, head of professor of music department in in uh, uh, in New Jersey at uh, at a college there, and uh, Chico uh comes in and he says well we're good, yeah sure starts writing just to let you know how how this works back in the day we had 16 tracks so you have to figure out you have to plan this you know it's not like you can do 12 takes of something or you have 20 tracks of drums so we bring in a, brings in a live band we're doing the music they're playing, they're playing. Is this really good? This is really good. We, all of a sudden we run out of tape. The song is, he wrote a seven minute arrangement. And I'm like, take one. Okay, go again. Take two. Tape has like 30 minutes on. We ran out of tape. Wind the tape back. We're Then we go on to take one. <clears throat> and um, all the players on that, uh, are, they're all superstars in the Latin field, but they're all being paid to, you know, to play. This Nicky Marrero was the timbal player. I, I don't remember everybody on it, but it was a nutty session, and we recorded that. And uh, of course, there were it's disco. It's 1975. Strings they come in, you know, they're coming in to do it. Uh, oh, a Gretchen Studer came in and sang all the backgrounds. Jimmy came and sang his part. Um, it, we pulled it together. And that was one of the first disco records of that era
0: in the New York scene. Can I ask well, you a technical question? Yeah. From an engineer standpoint, okay? You have 16 tracks. I mean, you have a whole bunch of microphones. You mic up the drums, you have your bass, and you're tracking. How many tracks were being used for your drums on your tape? Because you have a full kit, you know, and strings and everything, so so people can understand that. Because you're dealing with a lot there, having the, you know,
1: yeah. And and this is this is this is how recording was done in the early '70s. The the style had just changed from having a a nice big live, lively sounding room. So, at the time, I've been recording Latin bands, and we had what we call gobos, which were dividers keeping every all the all the sound apart and we had just started recording 16 track in fact one of the first records we made in that studio 16 track was chananga 76 um we did their first album
0: and you're smiling do you know who i'm talking about okay so Charanga. Yeah, talk- Those who know David Mancuso made some of those songs very famous overnight. That's why I'm laughing. I know. Go ahead. Okay. So,
1: and once again, Disco Maniacs, we're getting to the the meat of the story, but to record Charanga, Charanga is is, is a light rhythm section, two violins, two singers in unison, and a flautist, and he plays all through it. So how do you record that in a room where pretty much everything's recording? I would record them. I would put the two singers in the lounge because it was night. There was a little window. They were in in our front lounge next to the water cooler. The flute player would play. We ran a long line into another studio. We had two studios to record him live and recorded all this stuff, which is very, very, you know, it was like the, the, the style of the day was isolation. So to be with you, stereo drums, of course, that was it. We had stereo drums. We had a tr- bass drum in the center, snare in the center. I put mics on the side. Uh, two tracks for drums, bass, guitar, uh, two tracks for percussionists because we had a conguero and a timbal player. Um, and then we had a track for overdubs. I'm trying to remember. I get credit for remembering this stuff. Um, so, but the singer on, She sang. Uh, she tripled herself. We bounced that down singer sound. So it was pretty simple. Uh, in order to mix it, it was like, turn everything up, make adjustments, record it. So the, well, the interesting thing was, I don't know if, back in the day, it was so new to do a 12-inch disco version. They called me, they called me up, because I'm supposed to know, in the afternoon, they were at Frankfort Wayne Mastering Labs, which was uh, a cutting room and this was at the beginning of, of the disco era. And they said, OK, well, it's 12 inch. What speed? Really? What speed? Yeah, we can do it at 45. It's going to be much louder and bigger. Or we'll do it at 33 as a 12 inch. So I said, 45. Record comes out. It sounds great. It's instantly obsolete. Nobody's playing 45, forty-five rpm, twelve inches. But if you look at the original record, it's forty-five rpm. And uh, at the time, the other <clears throat> the, the the other engineer besides me and Dominic, uh, his brother, the brother of the other engineer, is also named Dominic, and um, his name escapes me. But he was the chief engineer at Frankfurt Lane. And he was the guy sitting there with all the stuff. Showing you how prim- primitive it was, he had a little Radio Shack five-line um, five fader uh, EQ, and he would do things like turn up 10K, turn down this. It was, like, it was like something you'd have in your house. You bought for 75 That was mastering at the time. So the record came out good. If you listen to it today, it came out on Mary Lou Records, and um, it sold well. It was really well. So there I am. I did this. That was when I first met John Morales, by the way. John uh, came in. He was hanging out. He knew all the guys. And he was advising us on how to mix the record. Amazingly enough, after that session, he immediately moved to the background. And if, if you know John's story, he was involved in millions of recording sessions he would literally show up at the end three in the morning to sit there all right let me know let me know okay you guys done you jump on the console and make a mix that's how that's where all his mixes came from but at the at the time he was like yeah yeah it could be more of this and that the uh the drummer of the uh the drummer for this was mickey sevilla who eventually turned wound up with the savannah band and they were friends and so, anyway, the record comes out and we're thinking we're hot stuff. I don't know if I can use the S word on this. We were pretty hot. And so <clears throat> I'm starting to realize that I could do some cool things. So I went into the office and I said, you know, um, I'd like to make rec- more records. And the, the owner at the time, they were making a lot of money on industrial things and things like that. And while we all loved Latin music, uh, he wasn't. He didn't see a future for the studio doing a lot of music. We could make as much money during per hour recording one announcer doing a commercial. So this is what you do when you're 22. You say, "Too bad. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm gonna open my own studio. I'm gonna do all this stuff. Um, I want. I was night." Um, Working, so I'm working nine to five at the studio at night. I would go out to a studio in uh, Jersey City owned by a guy named Les Lido, which the studio I don't know if uh, it's pretty infamous. He wrote a song of called Cotton Candy. We won a Grammy for it as uh, uh, he wrote for um, uh, Al Hurt, it was the follow up to Java. And he's a, he's a songwriter, I can't remember the other things. He was uh, barely four feet tall, uh, crazy. He was a crazy guy. He had this little studio, and we were in there. He had what was called a 12-track, 12 12-track, 12 one-inch. So at night, I'd be working with these guys. He shows me in the back room. He says, you know, maybe you should, maybe you should buy this console. On this side is an empty console and a pile of parts. I'm an idiot. I said, okay, great, I'll buy it. I bought the parts. I paid it off in studio time. <clears throat> it was Fairchild faders and, and stuff. And I just thought, okay, great. This will be great. I'll, I'll, I'll build a console out of it. So I literally by hand wired it, connected it up. friend of mine and I built op amps, and we opened a loft studio um, in uh, Chelsea. And uh, let's see if I, have a pic- I don't have a picture of that console, but if you put up. Um, so anyway, there I am. We put in this console. Um, I have a three track machine. I turn it into four track. I start doing demos and stuff. Uh, wind up, wind up meeting a couple of guys from that studio, musicians. They said, we'll back you if we open the studio. Now I'm living in the back of Main Street, blank tape studio A in a in a loft building. So 8 a.m., all the people come into the loft, they're all running the sewing machines and, and everything. I'm waking up. I got a recording studio. So f- picture 13, please. So this is me. This is a little later. Behind me is our
0: four-track AMPEX. And Lenny, you know what that means, a four-tracks. Well, I wanted to know how you... Did you change the heads? Did you get... Who did the head assembly to change it to a four-track? Because that's something you can't make unless you built... Unless unless you're a genius. I'm curious to see how you did this. Um, At the
1: time, you could buy three-track machines really cheap because they were three-track. And in order to use them i mean it was a very primitive cell sync which is the way you synchronize the tracks was a switch toggle switch on it made a big pop when you used it <clears throat> and <clears throat> what there was a big business on guys who would take uh, the, the the assembly you take it off unscrew it send it to them and they put new heads in so think- then i had to buy a fourth electronics and put it in now at the time i considered myself fairly handy And I did all this stuff myself, Um,
0: but at the time, hang on, Bob, check out your telephone. Look, the phone next to this with a real a landline phone. Everyone, no cell phones yet.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to tell you a couple of odd things about this picture too. First of all, look at look at my hair. Second of all, next to me is our two track. That's a two track tape machine. Uh, see the little, if you if you look at it up close, there's a little knob where the heads are. And when you rewound and, and fast forward to the tape, you had to manually pull that open. Otherwise, you'd blow your speakers out because it was so simple that it didn't have anything to lift the tape when you rewound. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it was really crazy. To the left of that is our 16 track. We had purchased a 16 track. I'll, that's a story I'll tell in a minute. On top of it, this is later in the time than, than uh, in the story. But on top of it is a mono Dolby A processor. Back in the day, you would use noise reduction. And we got a job to put a singer on tape, on a, on a, on a project and on 16 tracks. So we rented the Dolby A. <laughs> so we're in there spending a lot of money every day to, to use that. But anyway, yeah, the console was tiny. Uh, We all worked crazy hours. So, all right, so we're we're there. My soon-to-be partners purchased with me a 16-track and a Steinway Grand, now a real studio. We're below 42nd Street. Still, nobody will come down, legit. It was still R&B and Latin, which I loved. But your, your pop musicians, nobody would go below 42nd Street. They all recorded on, the 10th, on, on 10th Avenue and uh, on the Upper West and Side. Brill,
0: so basically by the Brill Building, up that way. Brill Building, yes. You would, that's where there were some
1: studios uh, along there. Like I said, I was at the Palace Theater at the time, which is on 47th Street. But the major, major studios, except for RCA, were over on 10th Avenue in the 40s. Sitting alongside these million-dollar monster studios were all the Latin distributors, and you would drive up 10th Avenue, and to the right would be Tico, and all these record labels would have their distributor distributors there. Latin music was really backseat, you know, out of the trunk. Here's your records. Give me some money. So anyway, um, <clears throat> put in the 16 track, and. Um, Started going. I'll never forget the day that we were working at a, a band called Malo. We did Malo's album and I'm there and Guy calls up and says, Well, we're ready, we're ready to come down and convert your machine to 24 track. I'm thinking, Cool. So we tell the, the guys, there's a couple of guys like, go out for lunch, here's twenty bucks, pay for lunch. Two days later, the machine has been converted. It's a big joke, you know, it's like, oh it just everything plugs in well it doesn't really work like that so we when we got 20 to be 24 track we were able to attract uh, more and more intense clientele am i
0: is everybody's brain exploded by now Okay, so <laughs> they're all, all intensely listening. No, no, no. You okay. understand something, Bob. Okay. You explain this clearly. This doesn't exist to most people. They don't understand. You're doing a great job. Please keep going. Okay. So
1: if you put up number three, this is uh, the, the record label that, that followed me to my new studio. This is a, 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 a pseudo gold record. For Soy by Chiranga 76. And uh, we mixed it. It was on our 16 track and did the whole thing. We were so proud of this. This is our first, my first gold record, even though, if you notice, it's not an RIAA record. Most of the record labels in the disco era did not report accurate sales. Because if you report you have half, half a million dollars in sales, you've got to pay taxes on it.
0: Don't miss the rest of this wonderful interview. Search for part two on the internet and listen to the rest of the story.